Welcome to Batonnage, a podcast of stirring and we hope stimulating discussions about wine. Your two hosts are Guardian Wine columnist Fiona Beckett. In addition, Fiona publishes her own website called matchingfoodandwine.com and Master of Wine, Liam Stevenson. Liam is a winemaker and business consultant and you can find him on his website, globalwinesolutions.com. This week, Fiona and Liam are talking to Dan Jago, discussing whether Britain is still at the heart of the international wine trade. Dan has held three of the most prestigious positions in the UK wine trade, Managing Director of Bibendum Wine, Head of Wine at supermarket giant Tesco, and most recently CEO of Britain's oldest wine and spirit merchant, Berry Brothers and Rudd. This edition of Batonnage was recorded in early January 2019 at the Berry Brothers offices in St James's in the heart of London. We're starting the new year off with um, a fantastic uh, guest, Dan Jago. Um, Bright in the new year, it's only, what is it, the 3rd of January? Yeah, like I think you've just flown in. Well, from, from Scotland. Yeah. I escaped to the islands off the west coast for new year, for whole money, mm-hmm. um, but managed to stay indoors and not wander around with a piece of coal in my pocket. Well, so what were you, what were you doing Nothing. Far flung spot. Eating and walking, which is pretty much what one does. It's the most beautiful part of the world and it's quite extraordinary. The cottage we were staying in, you looked out of the kitchen window and, and the dining room window and you looked across at the Paps of Jura and down to Ida and off to Orange to the right and um, Mull off to the left. You can see five islands um, from, from the window, which is quite a, quite a special part of the world. And is this a regular haunt for getting away from it all? It has been for many years, about 30 years. My, my best mate lives there, and so I go up there a lot, and our children have grown up together, and we've taken our children there pretty much every year for 25 years now. Very nice. And back to London. <laughs> back to London. Back to St James's. So it's a privilege to be here. I, I was saying to you earlier that the wine trade for me, I mean, one of the joys of the wine trade is it takes you to extraordinary places, whether that be a chateau or a cellar. Or, and this is, I guess, one of them, isn't it? I'm quite looking forward to walking around afterwards. But I haven't been in this building many times, but it's really, I feel like it's part of the institution of the wine trade. When, when did it begin here? Um, 1698, uh, the first buildings went up on, this was literally, St James's Street was the West End of London. Mm -hmm. By West End, I don't mean uh, Brelite's big city where you go for a night out. I mean the very western side of London uh, was St James's Street, so there were fields over there. Um, And then uh, with the development of people supplying to the palace, which is next door, remember that until Buckingham Palace was built in the 1900s, um, that was the palace. So Henry VIII, Elizabeth I we're at St James's Palace, which is directly opposite us here. Yeah. Um, so 1698, um, a, a woman called Widow Bourne, who nobody knows her Christian name, um, she opened up a wholesaling coffee merchants here, um, and her daughter ended up marrying a man called William Pickering, um, who traded coffee into the coffee houses of St James's, which is obviously, as you know, where all the daily business was done, rather than in the taverns and alehouses which is where all the blighters went to yeah. drink. Um, and we'll sure come back to that. Um, and um, so, uh, and the Pickerings then brought up a man called Berry who came up from Exeter, um, part of the world. And so the first Berry arrived here um, early in the 1700s and they started selling things as well as tea and coffee. They started selling wine. Um, and so in that day, you were shipping wine in cask? Yep. All of it? Yep. All when did, when did things come in bottles? Um, Well, it's quite hard to tell. We were still bottling uh, first growth Bordeaux in the 60s and 70s in the UK, shipping in cask and bottling ourselves over here, which is something Berries have always done. 
Um, the, the collection of bottles we've got here goes right back to the late 1600s, early 1700s, from the very traditional sort of punted, heavy, uh, bulbous bottle right through to the modern bottle we know today. But we would have started shipping the majority of wines um, in bottle somewhere around the mid-1900s. And was that done until that point because it was your quality control of bottling was better? I mean, did, or was it just how the trade worked until that it, point? Well, I think it was how the trade worked, but it was widely accepted there were only two people who did bottling. It was either the merchants in situ in country yeah. um, or it was the negociants in, in France um, or wherever they happened to be. And negociant bottling wasn't as good. It was considered as certain merchant bottlings. And we've had bottles of both 61 and 66 Palmer, uh, Berry's bottling, which famously people like Neil Martin have said is better than Vito bottling. Yeah. Um, so we had quite a reputation for the quality of our bottling. And we've opened bottles back to, um, we've got some Lafitte 58, 1858 downstairs, um, oh, and 1868. And these things are Berry's bottlings and, and, you know, quite unusual. And then Mouton, well, they started Chateau bottling in the 60s, and yeah. then what everyone followed on after that. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and, and, but I think our last Chateau bottling uh, of a crew classe, Bordeaux, would have been in the mid-80s. I think it was as late as that, where we were still bottling some wine from cask over here. They built the warehouse in Basingstoke in 66 and opened it in 67, and that was to do bottling there. Because up until then, we bottled in um, London Bridge, where everybody else used under the under the arches in Tooley Street yep. uh, for the previous 70 or 80 years, and before that, it was all here. And who gets to drink these? Uh, remarkable bottles. Anyone? L- all lucky that? people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think very lucky people. Didn't you come to a dinner where we opened a bottle of 45 label Barton? I think possibly. I've certainly been to a couple of have been quite special. <laughs> it, it's, it's, the family have been very good about making sure they lay down a collection of what they buy and sell every year. Um, and one of the things I'm very emphatic about is it shouldn't just be the Great Burgundy and Bordeaux. It needs to be a spread of the people we represent. So we've got a great collection of things like Ridge going back 20 or 30 years. Um, And we use them to show what history looks like in a bottle to our friends and our guests and our customers. Mm. Um, And there'll be a lunch or a dinner here pretty much every day of the week. Um, I'm quite intrigued by that because you've actually broadened. I mean, it used to be very much a wine trade thing that people would turn up here. But you've broadened the base of that a lot. I mean, I've seen you... Um, because I've seen on Instagram that you've entertained influencers, you know, from with a food background rather than wine. Uh, absolutely. Which seems smart. Really. It, uh, I, I'm not sure it's um, sort of deliberately smart. I think it's part of this dialogue that one wants to have. You know, Berry Brothers, as the oldest wine and spirit merchant in the UK, I feel it's got a, a responsibility to be not just uh, an establishment and a historical institution, but also an industry leader. I mean, I think we've got, we've got a role. People, when I arrived here, a couple of my friends who were in the old school wine trade turned around and said, you know, you're with the granddaddy now. And there was this sort of perception that we're the old boys and we're supposed to be the ones who set an example for the trade. And I rather like that. I think it's a good responsibility. Although you were kind of really quick off the mark with an online... Um, wine offering, weren't you? 94. Um, yeah. So four years BG, as they call it, before Google. Yeah. Um, so 94, Simon Berry, who was a real instigator of change and innovation. Uh, Simon set up a, an online transactional website. I think the first um, wine online transactional website in the world. Yeah. Um, and we went to Hong Kong in 98, which was way ahead of a lot of people. Um, and we were one of three wine merchants uh, in, in Hong Kong uh, trading quite early. 
Uh, now there are over 700. Because at your website, I mean, I think then and still is now, I feel like it's always been incredibly, it looks like a lot of time has gone into it. It's very info-rich. It's very it's very deep in content, isn't it? I mean, it was never a, a bit part, part of the game. It's all no. from the beginning, it's been taken very seriously. It is. Uh, like a lot of businesses, it's not a, a, it's not a majority of our transactions. Um, and it's growing all the time, and it ranges between about 7 and 15%, depending on what's going on, of our private client sales. But it's an incredibly informative part of the business. We, we've always made it very information-rich. Uh, we're always a business that's invested in the stuff behind the scenes. So the room you're sitting in is the spirits room yep. um, with a, a wall that was originally part of Henry VIII's uh, real tennis court on one side um, and a collection of the history of the business uh, from the spirit side in bottle uh, from King's Ginger, which was uh, created in 1903 for Edward VII. His doctor rang up shortly after the coronation and said, uh, the king has got himself a newfangled uh, car which he is driving around the park, and he's getting rather cold. Could you come up with a tonic to fortify him while he drives around the park? I, mean, I think it's probably the last example of drink driving being encouraged <laughs> rather than disapproved of. But, uh, and that's where King's Ginger, which is one of our spirits, is created. So just going back to that idea of bottling here in the 60s, if you look at, say, your balance sheet or, or the cost of goods in those days, and you look at the cost of first growth and second growth then, I mean, they were noticeably more affordable then than they are now? I mean, just take away the growth in, you know, I think, money. I think, I think everything was noticeably yeah. more affordable then than it is but now. fewer people could uh, afford it. Absolutely. Um, and fewer people consumed it as well. You know, wine was not a, a mass market consumption product. Most people didn't drink wine. And if you looked at the wine list in those days, you would see Bordeaux, you might see one or two Burgundy slash Beaujolais. You'd see a lot of German wine. And German wine was the most expensive thing on our list. Yep. For a long time, German wine was the truly valuable wine. Um, and then occasionally you'd start to see um, things like port creeping in. Uh, you'd start to see towards the, quite early on actually for this company, um, in the 1930s you start to see Australian wine, Australian fortified um, uh, tawnies and things like this starting to come in. Um, and Berry's always been a business that's looked beyond just the obvious but it was Bordeaux, Port and Germany yeah. that provided the backbone of what we did. But do you think it's become harder to be an exceptional wine merchant than it was back then? Or has your customer base just changed and evolved? Very good question. Um, I think it is incredibly difficult to be exceptional in anything because um, it is quite easy to access uh, a role in the marketplace now. There's more wine merchants now than there's ever been. There's more people engaging in wine, be it through the written word or through things like this podcast yeah. or as an online wine merchant than we've ever seen. Um, the retailers, large and small, have done a very good job of uh, democratising wine uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and therefore, to be exceptional at something requires you to be active and very forward-looking. And it always requires you to what I call leapfrog. Yep. You need to look at what's going on at the moment and work out how you're going to get ahead of it again. And so it's something that the dot-com, the tech world, has been very good at. And the new shop you've opened, which yep. is what, just around the corner, Palmau, um, Palma, yeah. um, which is stunning, beautiful. Is it Was that a slight reaction to other things that were going on in the town? or No, it was actually a reaction to the fact that I'd always been nervous from the first day I walked into number three, the old shop here, that it was a really bad shop. Um, it was a lovely room, yep. but it was a really bad retail space. Because In fact, the room you're in now was the spirit shop, and the room next door was the wine shop, and we had about 150 wines on display, yet we've got 3,500 wines, different wines, in the cellars downstairs. So uh, we had this building that we had developed next door, we had the ground floor, which was always going to be 
the lowest value rent of the lot and I went let's do it ourselves yeah yeah I mean I have to say I always used to come in here and it felt like a place you came to have a meeting but it didn't feel like a place you come and buy a bottle of wine and it's exactly what we're back to now what we're doing now the room we're sitting in now is doing exactly what it was 40 years ago which was that customers or friends came in and sat down and maybe had a glass of wine and a conversation or a cup of coffee and talked about the issues of the day and what they needed to order but actually taking two bottles away in a bag was something that was quite new for this business. 25 years ago was the time it started in true retail. And I think what we've got around the corner now is pretty much state-of-the-art in terms of wine retail. So obviously you were Tesco's before here, um, and you learnt something about retailing there. Uh, how yeah, much of that... Shops. I've got one, no, two shops now. But many lessons from there carried into this? Uh, yeah, huge amount of lessons. I mean, I think I'm, I'm lucky enough to be one of those people that loves learning. Yeah. Uh, and I learn and learn and learn wherever I am. And... Um, I learned an enormous amount of Tesco. I, I found it the most extraordinary business. If you want to define what can do looks like, then you go and work for a business like Tesco, where nothing is considered impossible, and there's this amazingly ambitious attitude towards getting stuff done. Um, and the other thing about the business is it's got brilliant people in it. Um, it has extraordinarily high-quality people yeah. who go there because they want to work for a great business, and I was very lucky to have been drawn into that um, back in 2006. Um, but in terms of retailing, you learn a huge amount. Um, you, for instance, in terms of... Things one learns. Yeah. What, um, you know, con- concrete couple of things. Um, the general message of retail would be that you have to follow your customer. And my previous boss, Terry Lee, was very good at that and defined that. I also believe firmly that you have to lead your customer. And the challenge of retail is defining the line between when you're following and when you're leading. Um, And sometimes customers don't know what they want, therefore you've got to create awareness for them. Other times they know exactly what they want and you've got to create value for them. Um, And getting the balance right between value uh, in terms of your perceived price versus the competition is absolute in terms of you are measured instantly and every day versus creating authority and awareness, which is something that's much harder to do in a very crowded marketplace. And I think in many ways, I think it's the issue that most retailers today struggle with, is they struggle with this idea of authority beyond price. Um, And uh, we watch this again and again and again. You know, reading your writing, it's mostly about what great value Aldi or Lidl are selling a particular product for. Now, some people say that's that's, um, de-emphasizing the authority and 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 the skill that goes into the selection of those products. Um, and I think that retail is a balance of trying to do both. And I think we were very successful at Tesco at the time I was there. I think we made enormous inroads into the authority of things like Finest in the marketplace. Yeah. Finest, Finest was and is actually still a good range. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? When you when you go to taste wine, do you get more excited about coming to a Berry Brothers tasting or a Tesco's tasting? What's Well, <laughs> leading question. Obviously, uh, obviously, Berry Brothers, the wine's going to be more exciting. But it's always interesting to see what supermarkets are doing. And they have ups and downs. I mean, um, you know, supermarkets go through really good periods. And then sometimes complacency comes in uh, or I think costs get compressed and sort of, you know, ranges get shrunk and the offering is just less interesting. I think having gone through a really bad period, um, I think supermarkets are kind of, Oh, no, one or two supermarkets are doing a really good job again. Um, I mean, there was a period where you went to a, tr- a press tasting and there would be 15 New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. Mm. And you were just, you know, that was kind of like, 
Well, we know the customer likes New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, so we're going to actually offer an awful lot of it. But actually, that was that was quite dull. Yeah. You know? I mean, maybe it was a successful retailing strategy, but it's certainly what didn't make for an exciting tasting. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because um, uh, we in retail uh, spend or spent quite a lot of time, certainly when I was in Tesco, uh, in trying to generate awareness in the media uh, and particularly into the wine writing media to make sure that our, our you know, we were, the first thing that arrived on Monday morning or Tuesday's of test was the press cuttings and um, the word Tesco would have appeared more frequently in the wine column than in any other part of any newspaper. And so volumetrically, you were always at the top of the pile. Um, so it mattered. But in the team, we sat there worrying sometimes about how much nasal gazing went on in terms of the definition of one using Sauvignon Blanc versus another. And really, it didn't matter that much to our consumers. And that was the challenge, is that very, we, did, we surveyed this regularly. Less than 4% of our consumers actually use any reference from journalism in their selection of products. Um, so it was a very small part, and it is a challenge often. One is concerned that the, the wine press talks to each other, not to the, the broader marketplace. Do you think that's changed? Do you think, um, do you think the wine press is more influential at one time than it is now? I mean, given that there's a kind of much broader range of commentators and the social media, do you think um, wine columns matter less? Um, I think wine columns matter less, but I think that writing about wine and food has never mattered more. Um, and I think that to turn it on its head, there are now far more people interested in wine as a subject and in the detail behind it and in the thinking behind it and in the story of the people who make wine and drink wine and sell wine than we've ever had before. The idea of just writing four bottles and saying that they're nine ninety nine, I think it's got relatively little relevance. But the story behind the origins of Kleinconstantia I think that's a proper story, and I think writing has never been better. The quality of writing that we're getting now, and again, a bit like retailing, the pressure on the established and very emeritus writers like you, Vienna, from a million, a, a million <laughs> bloggers coming up behind you, all yeah. thinking they can do the job better because mm. they've got a degree in English, mm. uh, I think is really interesting, and I think it's created a very vibrant market for the written word, be it electronic or printed. And we've got, I've already got a couple of copies somewhere of um, Number Three magazine, which is our uh, newspaper, which we publish now twice a year, um, and we get some brilliant writing for it. It's it's just a joy to be able to print something like that. Yeah. No, actually, um, I talked to one of your colleagues and said, uh, I talked to Dan about and, uh, he, that's Clue, said, talk to him about wine writing. He's really interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm just interested. I'm just very jealous of people who can write well. I've, I've, I've always... It's always been one of these things I can't do at all. And um, I love watching people who can, reading the work of people who can. Yeah. I think you should try something. I do as well. Particularly, John, um, is, is there a wine that you want to show us? And tell us the story behind uh, Well, I'll talk loudly because I'm just stepping over to the fridge to get to the bottle. Pack. Before we go away from that last, I was going to ask. Um, uh, so when you were buying, for, well, sorry, running Tesco's wine department, did you feel you had more influence then than you do now? I mean, I, I know it's different, but I guess there was a point there where you were playing with a much bigger part of the market. You can make decisions and choices at a team which might change the direction of a whole group of sales or the way that a customer base operates. So we, is that different now or is it? I think I've ever thought about it as influence. I mean, it, it, uh, it was a bigger number. Yeah. Um, this is a smaller number, but this is a more complicated job because I've got 450 growers around the world 
who are very, very demanding in their expectations of business like this because you're dealing with people who are the best at what they do. Yeah. Um, I think we had, it was much simpler at Tesco. You had more authority. You can make decisions more quickly. People uh, generally jumped when you placed an order for a million cases. Right. Um, higher than they do when you argued about um, three cases or something you can't have because it's on allocation. Yeah, sure. So um, I think that this role has much more breadth to it. And we're in the wine business, but also in the spirits business. We're also very international. I mean, I looked after the wine for... 12 countries around the world for Tesco, but it was nothing like the complexity of, of an organisation like this. And I suppose it's easy to walk in the front door here and think that you're a, a fine wine business just for very wealthy, you know, financial institute people, um, and you're a much bigger business than that, and your entree team is big. Uh, so I guess it's, it's, it's easy to get the wrong picture when you walk through this door about what this business is about. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people have got a complete misunderstanding about what this business is about. It's um, it, Most people still think of it as being purely private clients buying very expensive, fine old Bordeaux. Yeah. And it, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. Half our business is private clients, but the other half of our business is on and off trade. It's international, it's spirits, it's brands. Um, it's an extraordinary diverse. And when you talk about private clients, in this building alone, we did last year nearly 3,000 events, be it WSET wine schools or dinners or lunches or people taking parties downstairs yeah. in our cellars. Um, but that only represents 5% of our turnover. So there's a huge amount. The shop next door is an incredibly important part of what we do too. So it's, um, I, I love the variety here. And this is a great thing about this business is it never stands still. And it's always looking for something new so to do. So it's still a very man-hour heavy business. Isn't yes, it, it is. Yeah. Very much so. So we've got about 400 people working in the business yeah. um, around the world in total. And, um, sorry, Hong Kong, did you say you had an office there? Yep. Have you still got an office there? Office in Hong Kong, office in Tokyo, office in Singapore. Office and how are they in doing? New York, I office mean, in San Francisco. You don't have to tell me financially how they're doing, but how are they doing? I mean, obviously they're still there, so they're working. But they're doing very well. Yeah. There's about 40 people based in Hong Kong. Um, it's a very important market to us. Um, we have done very well. It's a combination, a bit like the UK. It's uh, Half of it is uh, private clients. And half of it is wholesale into clubs and restaurants in the Hong Kong area. Because I've seen other London businesses, particularly fine businesses, that have gone in probably around the same time that you did and have pulled out in the last five years. Yeah. And you haven't. Obviously, you're succeeding where they didn't. I think didn't. we were able to survive through a very difficult period of an enormous boom of the 9 and 10 on pre-mobile low vintages, which in Hong Kong were huge. I mean, this business did over £100 million on pre-mobile um, in one of those vintages. Uh, so it was gigantic, and that was driven by Asia. And then there was an enormous crash in 2011-12 when people decided that it wasn't as good an investment as they thought, and the prices came down. Uh, and a number of people couldn't cope with that. Um, but I think berries is about the long term. And again, like everything, we're a very diverse business. We have lots of different income streams. And for me, that's the secret, is, is not to have all your eggs in one basket. I think if you are just a broker or just a retailer, it's very difficult to cope with the, the, the headwinds of the changing market. So go back to 1960 again, and we're um, sitting here selling mainly to people in London, in fact, completely to people in London, I would have thought. Um, and now, 40, 50 years on, we're selling all over the world. Yep. And if you hadn't done that, I guess you would be playing with a, a diminished market. You get smaller allocations, potentially. I mean, yeah. you would struggle on... Quite possibly. I mean, we've, we've grown the business through both um, uh, generic growth of new customers, new customer acquisition, and the internet and things. We've also grown through acquisition. So we've bought four well-known wine merchants over the last 20 years. Mm. Um, Fields, Morrison, Verdon, Mistral, and Richards Walford 
were all bought by this company and giving us an amazing portfolio of producers um, who we are very lucky to represent through all of our channels. Yeah. So, um, you know, we still sell lots and lots of wine to people who I won't name, who are well-known other competitors of our business as an agent. Mm. So, uh, and long may we continue to. What about the UK as a whole? I mean, is it still perceived as important in the wine trade? I mean, it was, you know, there was always the feeling that the UK was at the heart of the wine trade. Is that still the case, do you think? Yes, I do. Uh, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, that, that's even with my WSTA hat on, uh, which I chair now. Um, WSTA being? The Wine and Spirit Trade Association, yeah. which is the sort of the lobby group for the yes. wine and spirit industry and represents almost everybody. Mm. There's, I think there's less than about 10 companies in the UK in the industry who aren't represented by us. Um, so uh, it's, it's an incredibly important part of what we do, which, which is to go out and bang the drum for, for the industry we're part of. Um, but I think when I talk to people around the world, this is still regarded as the epicenter for um, the wine industry, not perhaps in terms of the old-fashioned view of looking at it as a sort of um, fuddy-duddy, this is where the biggest market was. And we were the biggest market for a long time, but we're not now. But I think it's the, the concentration of experience and expertise is the thing that people really come here for. Um, in America, there is undoubtedly as much expertise and, and possibly as much experience but it's spread out because it's such a big country it's all over the place um and i think we we value knowledge and experience very highly in this market as do producers um so uh, the, the the rise of the som if you like in america i think not hasn't necessarily done anything for the perception of experience and knowledge um it's done a lot for the ability to sell wine mm. Pour us the first wine. So I've got two wines. I was asked to produce a, a wine that represented the past and a wine that represented the present. Um, and I, one was very obvious to me, the other one was more difficult. So I'm going to start with the present, um, if that's all right, and then we'll go back to the Absolutely. Um, the wine for the present is from um, Andrea and Chris Mullinier in, okay. in South Africa. Uh, in the Swartland, and, and they'll be known to many of your listeners, um, assuming that your listeners uh, are interested in wine in the first place. Um, and Chris and Andrea uh, have been for some time now the sort of wunderkind of the Swartland and, and the, uh, the instigators of the new revolution of the Swartland, along with people like um, Evan Sardi. Um, and we're lucky enough to represent both the Mullingers and uh, Evan in the UK. And for me, South Africa is possibly the most exciting country outside the established world um, that has the ability to produce truly great fine wine. Um, and the red wines, we're already seeing wines from, from Mullinius over £100 a bottle at opening prices, um, and they're selling well. Because um, they were taken over, weren't they? Or they sold to... They, they, they sold to Baz Singh, who owns Liu Estates. Yeah. Um, they didn't sell all of it. They've gone as partnership. Yeah, right. So, yeah. so they've, got a, they've got an estate um, up at their very own themselves, up in the Swartland, um, and then they've Ramston Farm, and then they've also got the winery down in Frenchhook. Mm. Um, so they produce the Liu wines, and then they produce the Mullinier wines. Um, but what we've got today is 2016 Chenin Blanc uh, Granite, from uh, the Mullinier. So this is their top white wine, um, and it is from two, uh, what I would call, um, uh, minimal intervention plots of very old vine Chenin in the Swartland. Um, 
So the youngest vines in this are about 35 years old and the oldest are 46 years old. Um, and they make about 2,000 bottles this year. 2016 was the last release. Um, 17 is the, is the latest release. And this is a wine that comfortably is designed to age for 10 to 20 years. And for me, in our business, an enormous part of what we do is collectability. Mm-hmm. It's wines that you can buy now and will get better with time. It's, uh, the amount of wine that we sell for drinking today immediately is still significant, but it's not the core of our business. And what I love about this is this is wine from a region that's been known for so long as being the producer of the highest volume of cheapest wine you can get, and most of it from this grape variety. And what you've now got is a wine which is so young, has got so much power and potential, yet like the great wines of the Loire, has got 15 or 20 or 30 years more available of ageing and development and excitement. So you buy a couple of cases and you put them in your reserve in Basingstoke and you draw one case out after 10 years and another case out after 15 years and you sit there and you open the old bottle and you think, oh, that was well worth buying, wasn't it? It seemed expensive at the time, but with hindsight, what a great bottle of wine. And, and, and even now it is, you know, mouth-watering. I mean, it has got this incredibly delicious acidity. Um, I think it's. A, I think you're right. It's interesting, South Africa, how quickly it's got. Well, you've got this amazing collectability coming out of South Africa now, and almost like there's not a ladder. Sometimes, in a way, there's there's a lot of generic one. I think it still delivers a very average local um, price in the in the market, and yet small people, apparently without any great advertising budget or any great shouting, have managed to create a great reputation purely for making outstanding wine. Absolutely right. Absolutely delicious. And, and that's probably been the biggest change I've seen in the last five or ten years. Is the ability for pure quality and energy and passion yep. uh, on a very small scale to command a price that allows them to do it. And that's the equation. I mean, there's been lots of lovely producers I've worked with over the years, like Darren Berg and Springfield, when I was at Mabendum. Mm. Um, but they're not small producers. They're producing quite a lot of wine. And therefore, if they can be the right price and the right volume, uh, then they can stand to make a very good business out of it, as Darren Berg have done. Um, but people like this who make a relatively small amount of wine need to be commanding a premium. And this is not a cheap bottle of wine. This is £50 retail. Um, So I think £50, God, that's a huge amount of money. Really is a huge amount of money. But if you look at the whole shift of society, less but better, this wine sits absolutely in the sweet spot. Sure. 50 quid is a lot if you drink a bottle of wine or two every day amongst your friends. But if you're drinking maybe two or three times a week and you love wine and you want to explore interesting things, wine like this, <laughs> and you've got a Corova, um, you can you can explore with wines like this as well. So on a restaurant, this 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 would be a hundred and twenty-five pounds, yeah. which is not crazy pricing in a restaurant list anymore. Mm. You know, people talk, and I know there are a lot of people who for that for whom that's an enormous amount of money. But if you're entertaining on somebody else's ticket um, or you're on an expense account. <laughs> You know, 120 quid for a bottle of wine in a good restaurant like Corksmoor um, is is not an enormous amount. It is a it is an area which also I think they're very supportive of the growers on. It reminds me a little bit. I mean, I live close to Cornwall, as you know, um, and the restaurant scene down there is wonderful. But they're all small. They're very loyal to each other. They're very supportive. Everyone eats at each other's restaurant, talks with each other's restaurant, and I always feel that with South Africa. It's a uh, they're not uh, they haven't necessarily been ambitious with scale. But they have been ambitious with quality. They've been ambitious with small yields. They've been ambitious with how they put time and effort into it. And the net result is outstanding wine. Um, and I, think, I think they've seen they've seen scale act against the best interests of the country. Right. And I think when you looked at SFW and KB, KWV and, and the other large cooperatives, you know, it was all about buy it as cheaply as possible from the farmers and then sell it in volume. Um, and I think that didn't necessarily help 
the whole of South Africa raised its profile uh, in the broader world. And post-apartheid, it's taken a long time coming, but there's been some really good work. But it's interesting how South Africa has achieved that when I don't think there's quite the level of, I mean, I'm with you on South Africa being almost uniquely exciting. Um, but it's interesting that that hasn't really applied so much, I think. I've recently been to Chile, and actually there's mm. some interesting wine coming out of Chile now. But until recently, it hadn't, didn't really apply to Chile, didn't really apply to Argentina, Australia, I think, is pretty exciting, um, but a lot of it isn't kind of coming through. I, I, I don't think any of those countries, much as I love them all, you know, I've been to Chile probably more times than I've been to any wine-producing country in the world, um, it's, it doesn't have that same sense of energy and urgency and individuality. And I think that you go to South Africa and you start talking to someone like Evan Sardi, and it's a whole day's conversation. It can be about one vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the depth of passion and knowledge and concentration is extraordinary. Wine is made in the vineyard more than almost anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Um, and they're seeing that in the Swaziland, and they're protecting. Rosa Kruger is helping them protect all of the old sites now, which is creating some phenomenal wines. Yeah, I agree. I think um, there's a lot of business building in the rest of the New World. Yeah. And I do feel here... You do find the, the the passion for quality is extraordinary. I mean, that idea of sh- of seller share for me, which is now we're seeing everywhere, all of a sudden, that idea that you could borrow somebody else's space, make three barrels of wine, get started, grow to six barrels, twelve, build your own shed. I mean, that really began here, and okay, it's extraordinary. And, and I look at I look at one of our producers, um, uh, Mick Craven, the Mick and Jeannie Craven. And he, he's the, the assistant winemaker still at Mulderbosch, but right. he's producing the most fantastic wine. Out the back. But, 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 Out the, back. <laughs> the point is that the big boys in South Africa are prepared to let their winemakers have these side projects. That doesn't happen everywhere. Uh, very wise too, I think, as yeah. well. So, Show out of interest, who's this for? When you talk about your customer base, your let's. I imagine you've got quite a lot of private customers who are relatively elderly who bought Bordeaux and Burgundy in their cellars. Are they buying this, or is this a new oh, yeah. customer? Um, it's it, it, they're not as old as you would think. I mean, yes, there is a more senior because they tend to have more money, and therefore they come to a slightly more expensive wine merchants resolve it. But um, I think that there is a. 30 to 50 year old generally male but increasingly women are becoming more active in this sector um, who are buying these wines because they want something alternative to white burgundy so we're seeing a rise in the interest in white bordeaux at the moment Uh, south african shenan in particular from south africa Um, chardonnay at the very best is still very exciting so if you look go to california you look at wine from things like um jim clandenon you know some of the chardonnays out there are brilliant but um in terms of that purity, that acidity, that brightness, that freshness with concentration, um, you know, Great White Burgundy does it uh, when it's not suffering from issues. Yep. Uh, and and uh, I think wines like this do it too. Yeah. With a second bottle. Delicious. You've just ruined my dry January. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're, not, you're, not, you're not allowed to have dry January. You work in the wine trade. Yeah, but I, I know. I try. Three days. Um, so... The second bottle is um, a classic, as they say, um, and a traditional bottle. Um, This is Good Ordinary Claret. Uh, Good Ordinary Claret, the label of which you can see, uh, not good for radio, um, is still the same label, pretty much, that we've been putting on our bottles for 150 years. If you look at the 1868 Berry's Bottle Defeat Downstairs bottle, uh, you'll see it's almost the same label as this one now. 
And Good Ordinary Claret has been around for about 40 years, and we've been producing this wine consistently year in, year out, in the same way. Uh, and it's, it's, it's our biggest selling wine. It's our uh, most well-known flagship, if you like. And what I love about this wine is that it's unbelievably high quality for the price, which and is, which is nine ninety five a bottle. Is it really? So yeah. it's ten quid. Um, These adjectives, by the way, Fiona, as a journalist, good and ordinary. I assume you use those a lot when you're describing a favourite one. Actually, I am in favour of using very basic descriptive words. Yeah. Um, I don't go off on flights of fancy about my wine tasting terms because I think it's one of the things that creates a barrier between uh, between consumers and and bottles. Yeah. I mean, I know there are people who disagree about that, but. Um, uh, I remember talking to um, an American sommelier who said that, that the best thing um, that you could say to a customer was, this wine is great. Yeah. And actually, um, yeah, it's trite in a way. But um, nevertheless, you still get that sense of enthusiasm about it. And it's not necessarily better for being elaborately embellished, I think. Yeah. Anyway, this is lovely. So the source for this, does this change... Regularly? No, the source has been the same for, for about 20 years now. Okay. Um, this is made by Dort, um, yep. CVVG in Bordeaux, uh, and we have a big shed at the back of their, their sheds, um, which is the Good Ordinary Claret Warehouse, and it, it has got um, thousands of barrels, uh, which we rotate through about a third new, um, wow. and so it's an expensive project. But we sell this in half bottles, bottles, magnums, double magnums, and imperials, um, and it's just a lovely thing. And one of the things what's, we do. What's the vintage? Uh, this is 16. So, 16. so, so it's just released. It's not a blend. This is a wine that's made for you. Yeah, this is a wine that's made for us. And we know when it is a blend. Sorry. We, we know who the growers are. We know who yep. the British Chateau are that supply the, the fruit that comes in. And what, what's, yes. what, what are the proportions of the. Um, I'm going to look this up now because I haven't checked for the 16 and see if it tells me. Um, no, it doesn't. There you are. Yeah, um, right. I have no idea. It I'm guessing. Very, it I'm guessing. Exactly. I'm guessing it's got Cabernet Sauvignon, <laughs> maybe a little bit of Cabernet Franc, <laughs> maybe some Pretty Velo in it. Um, but it, it, just you showing know, that it, I know something about wine. It's really good. And funny enough, going back to that conversation we had with Will Lyons about Bordeaux, and the, the great thing about Bordeaux at this price being fresh and having that fresh bite to it, you know, that lunchtime claret we talked about. Um, it's exactly that, isn't it? It's got um, absolutely and, light and, this wine, and fresh. This wine does everything it says it's supposed to do early on, but it also then works well. And this wine, I've had a bottle of 2010 of this the other day, and it was fantastic. And it's clearly a proper wine that lasts. Yeah. Um, one of the things we do every year um, is we commission um, uh, for a very limited quantity of a single label um, of Good Ordinary Claret. So the first year we did this was three years ago, and you can see I've lined them up here. The one on the right that says Love... Uh, was Paul Smith, um, and the next one was Luke Edward Hall, which was done last year, and we've just launched and sold out of in the same week um, the Kate Boxer label, which is the one on the left now. Brilliant. So we do it just once a year. We do a limited bottling with an artist of um, an artist du jour, and we do it for fun. There's no other reason mm-hmm. at all. Um, That's Jackson's sis- sister, mother, 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 wow. um, and it's become it's become a, a sort of a, quite a collectible thing. Um, yeah. And somebody told me the other day that the latest one is trading on BBX, our online exchange, that customers can sell their wines through um, for three times its original price. Oh so goodness. the idea of good ordinary clarity at 30 quid makes me laugh. People do love um, collecting. I think that's kind I, of 
That seems to... I mean, wine was always a collector's thing, but there's a new collector, really. Absolutely. I mean, and, and it does account for the success of gin, in a way, that people have brought that collecting mentality to, to whiskey and then to gin, um, and, and now to to kind of minor wines, in a way, but ones which have some unique property. Uh, a wine, wine attracts fanatical collectors. Um, it attracts investors as well, um, and that is a small but significant part of the people who buy the most sort of other wines from us. Um, but the collectors, you know, I, I put myself in this category. So I just love buying wine that looks interesting, mm-hmm. knowing that I'm going to be able to leave it somewhere for a year or for ten, and then find out what it's going to be like afterwards. I'm sure it, it's, it's a risky sport, because if it's not very nice in ten years' time, then you'd rather miss the, miss the window of opportunity. But um, it, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. And as, a, as my friend in Scotland said to me this weekend, he said, but the wine's all free, so I've forgotten what we paid for it <laughs> that long ago. And he bought this claret, you know, we had a very nice bottle of Paddy at dinner two nights ago, and he bought it from me when I was working at Bibendum. And that is, you know, that's 25 years ago, and so we've forgotten. Yeah. And at the time, it feels we like free. It does feel like free. Which yeah. is wonderful. So yeah. you've obviously, you've run three of the larger companies in this country, and you've ended up here, but hearing you speak now, clearly you've never lost your passion for wine at all. I mean, that, it must feel like you've ended up in the right place, in a way. I'm not dismissing any of the businesses you worked with before, but you, do you feel like you're exercising your enjoyment of wine again now, more than maybe you have for 20 years? Yes, um, I, I didn't know I wanted to end up working in a place like this. Uh, I had no idea. I always knew, even when I was at Tesco, because I was offered a couple of other jobs within the business. And um, I said, no, I can't take another job. I've got to stay in contact with the wine business because I'm going to end up in the wine business somewhere. I'm not going to be at Tesco for all my life. And, and therefore, um, I didn't realise this was the place that I was going to end up. But I got a phone call uh, one day and somebody said, do you want to talk about Bowie Brothers? And I went, Yes. <laughs> without even realising. It hadn't been on my radar at all. And it's an extraordinary business that was, I think, for a long time, because it was um, fed and watered by Cutty Sark, the whiskey, mm. that was the prime source of income. I think it was known to collectors and fine wine investors, but it wasn't really known much beyond that. Um, and, uh, and I had very little knowledge of what Berries was. I knew I walked past it a hundred times and never been in it before I started work here. Did you have to go shopping for a new wardrobe? No, same old wardrobe. <laughs> Still just as worn out. Um, going back to the, the wine industry as a whole, you said like um, that it's in a reasonably good pr- place, that people still respect the UK for, for our expertise. But there must be things that are wrong with it overall. So um, if, if the wine industry were a company mm. and you were coming in to sort it out... Mm. What would you do? Very good question. Not entirely unsurprisingly. Um, what would I do if the wine industry was a company? Um, I would do a comprehensive review of profitability. Mm. The first place I start. Far too much of this industry operates at a loss, um, and it operates on the basis that the history was that you had a, a proper income from somewhere else. But you became a wine merchant because it allows you to drink um, uh, and enjoy yourself and to operate in a, with a group of very exciting people. Um, but far too much of this industry has operated on a marginal loss-making basis for far too long. And it's not good for the health of any industry to be dominated by uh, people who aren't in it to 
make a profit out of it because profit, whilst to some people it's an ugly world, it's actually the thing that allows you to do more things. And the way I always describe profit to people here is that profit is the thing that allows us to do bigger and more exciting things next year. Without profit, you can't do anything else next year. Mm-hmm. You can only do what you've done before. Um, so I would look at the industry and say, why does it lose money? Why does it have so many parts of it that are that are fragile? And why is it so fragmented? Um, where passion and energy is small and exciting, let's encourage and develop it. But where it needs help from a larger force, a greater good, um, then let's make sure that we, we encourage people to support it. A good example of that being English Marketing Wine, uh, which I know you've done your, your, your discussion on already, but English Marketing Wine is an incredibly fragmented group of um, passionate individuals, we're going back 20 years, who grew grapes and it was fun quite often bottled their, their Madeleine Angevin themselves in the back garden. Now you've got an organisation which has brought together the entire industry, is supporting them, helping them and encouraging them and allowing them to professionalise with support from the entire industry. And whether you're night timber or a tiny little producer down in Dorset, you're getting the same level of authority and support and collaboration from other members of the trade. And it's a really good example of how to do it in the same way we've talked about South Africa. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Um, well, I, don't, I think the market fixes things pretty well, but it's extraordinary, and this is a strange thing to say when you go back to my conversation about profitability, it's amazing how few businesses um, go bust in the wine business. If you look at other industries, uh, the rate of failure is incredibly high. If you look at the wine industry, uh, it's incredibly low, and that's because, go back to my point about there being external funding, you know, start with a, how do you make a small fortune in the wine trade? You start with a large one, uh, and I'm not the first person to quote that to you, I'm sure, but um, it's always been a bit like that. Um, I think that uh, being, being a bit more confident about how we work across all elements of the wine industry would be a good thing as well, and I think that there's a tendency for certain elements of, of, the, of the press to regard their role to be critical, uh, not necessarily of the wine, but of the trade, and I don't think that helps anybody. Mm-hmm. I think the most united uh, industries are the most successful industries. Um, and I think that uh, we need to work more closely with spirits. Uh, we need to be as unified as possible with other forms of alcohol. Um, alcohol is, a, is an area where consumption is declining, uh, we're being much, much more mindful of consumption in a way that we've never been around alcohol. And alcohol is not just wine. You know, beer is not the enemy of, of wine. Mm-hmm. It is a partner of, yeah. and it needs that. to be yeah. supported and engaged in that way. And I think, you know, again, with my with my industry hat on, I look sometimes at the fractions of, of spirits versus whiskey versus wine versus beer versus pubs, versus small retailers, versus large retailers, and it's not helpful. It should really be as joined up as possible, because yeah. we need to speak with the United Voice. Changing the profitability thing is a difficult thing to do across an industry, though, isn't it? Even if you just call the UK an industry, yeah. it's hard to make a change. I mean, we've yeah. got lots of companies all deciding to make their own decisions. Of course. And it's pretty hard to make those changes. I mean, I agree from my point of view, working with producers, I'm, I'm beginning to get the feeling that uh, if you're a producer in New Zealand, the idea of lobbing a load of wine and potentially a load of cash or debt into a company in the UK and hoping that they're going to pay you back when they sold it maybe one day. That's become... I feel like there's a d- desire for transparency in the industry now, which maybe there wasn't a year ago, um, and might carry on to carry on growing. I think people want to know where their money's going, where their wine is going, perhaps a little bit more than they used to. Yeah, I, I, think, I think so. Um, certainly we see amongst our, our, our 
grandest producers. We see a really active interest in who we're selling it to. Yep. I mean, really, really active interest, uh, not just in terms of the fact that our allocation is just for the UK or just for Hong Kong, but in terms of which restaurants are listed in, who are you selling to, who are you talking to about it. And our, our best producers are here a lot, meeting and talking with customers, with consumers, with critics, with restaurateurs. And it's a really important part of what they do. But um, I think they are, they all look at it um, beyond just the idea of reputation now. Yep. I mean, you've got to look at the balance sheet as well as the stars. Yeah. Mm. And 2019, okay? I don't think we can get away from the subject of, um, of Brexit. What do you think will happen? How, how I mean, uh, how uh, are you prepared? We're quite close it? now. What? We're quite... We are quite close. Um, three months? Under three months. Under three months. Less than three months. Um, uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's a travesty that we've um, come this far and yet know nothing about what's going to happen. Um, I mean, it must be impossible for businesses, really. It, it, it is impossible. It's mm. genuinely impossible. It's, you know, the, the definition of impossible. Um, <laughs> what we are doing is we are making sure that from a foreign exchange basis, we are as hedged as we can be, because there will be massive fluctuation if we left without a deal. Um, and do you think we will leave without a deal? No, I don't. Um, I, I think it would be a complete travesty. I think it would be the greatest failure of government and politics ever in this country if we left without some form of deal. Um, and uh, I think we have to have a deal. Um, and that deal will hopefully allow us to continue as we are for as long as possible until we've worked out what we're going to do next, because we haven't worked out what we're going to do next. Um, the other thing we're doing is we're making sure we're carrying enough buffer stock of fast-moving wine. Um, we're lucky, because it is our business, half of what we sell is bought today but not shipped for a few years time therefore we don't have to worry about the immediacy of it um, but we are bringing in for the wines that we sell like good ordinary claret a lot of every day we're making sure that we're carrying sufficient stocks of that but that's expensive you know yeah. we're a big business but to carry that extra stock means you've got to have the cash flow to do it and the banks aren't rushing forward and saying yep have an extra eight months worth of borrowings to small businesses in the in the mindset of brexit so that you can afford to buffer yourself against it but well, yeah, so wearing your WSTA hat rather than your um, your better insulated than most here, wearing your WSTA hat. Um, I mean, how do you think smaller companies are going to cope? Will uh, some go out of business? I think if we ended up leaving without a business, there's absolutely uh, without a deal. There's absolutely no doubt at all. Mm. It's going to affect some companies very badly indeed. Mm. Um, and it's cool. I, I have conversations regularly with our producers on the continent. We're saying, first of all, I don't understand what you're doing and why you've done it, but clearly nor do you. Mm. And secondly, they're saying, we really, really, really want to carry on selling to you. It really matters to us. Therefore, we want it to happen too. But I think from a national perspective, they're mostly sitting looking at us and going, well, you have to decide what you want, first of all. Mm. Once you've decided what you want, then come and have a conversation. Um, but I'm not sure we're, we're as far down the line as we'd like to be on that one. No. But the answer is, I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. No. I mean, a, a, anyone who tells you uh, a prediction is, is doing just that, they're predicting. Um, I think we will end up with some form of deal, and it will be mostly about transition, mm. uh, which means that we'll be able to carry on flying aeroplanes and driving lorries. Mm. Um, from a WSTA perspective, um, free movement of goods is the greatest priority for us mm. uh, that we need to happen. But um, you know, no to no deal is, is a very strong slogan that we're shouting from the rooftops at the moment. Um, and we are working extremely hard with government and with politics to make sure that that message is... Yeah, I mean, the amount of money that's being spent on 
the no deal. <laughs> on a no deal scenario is absolutely mind boggling. Um, but um, yeah, maybe we shouldn't stray too far into politics. Liam's told me that I mustn't get too political. Don't get no, because she can get very political. No, really? She can, I've, yeah. I've not noticed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, finally, um, last, last question. Um, so your new, your new consumer, um, your, your younger consumer, mm-hmm. what are you doing to engage them? Um, let's, let's, so you're millennial, I guess. Um, do, do you think you have any kind of rapport for, or like anything to offer you know, the younger consumer, the consumer who's kind of hanging out in, you know, cool restaurants in Shoreditch, for example. It's a long way away, Shoreditch, isn't it? Um, <laughs> as shame is all the great new restaurants are opening in Shoreditch, so you have to travel now, <laughs> um, for those of us who live in South London. Um, I, I think that the one thing that we offer more than anything is uh, information and education. Um, and that's the one thing that's really appealing, I think, to the next generation. Millennials long to know more about things. They want to know, they want to experience things. And experiences and education, I think, are going to be very firmly a bedrock of what we do in the future because I think people want to learn more. They want more detail. They want to know the origins, the history, the provenance, the handling, all the bits that go behind the scenes of making wine. They want to understand more about it. You know, they want to become a winemaker like Liam. No. Yeah, well, I think it, I think you're right. It's interesting if you think about what people talk about the millennial wanting. It is about experience. It is about Instagram moments. It is about social media. It's also about um, sharing, being part of something. It's subscription. All those all those elements which come together. Um, so it's kind of extraordinary that you do offer that. We're going back to that man hour thing and those people on the ground and those conversations. You do offer that in abundance, really. Um, so as a very elderly wine merchant, not you, the company. Um, <laughs> he said quickly. He said yes. it, it gone full exactly. circle and actually seems to be not too far away from what the millennial might actually want. Uh, I think uh, if you go back 50 years, at a dinner party, knowing too much about wine was a bad thing. Yeah. Slightly embarrassing. It wasn't that long ago. I can remember distinctly being told quite quietly not to talk too much about wine at, at dinner. Um, and if you now look at my daughter, who's in the wine trade and has been for four years now, um, having worked at Noble Rocks, and now she's at Pabendum, having been at Indigo in between. Yeah. Um, you know, knowing about wine is something her friends envy her for massively. And lots of them are signing up for wine courses because they want to know, they want to have a bit more about this wonderful product. They want to be able to experience it. And then that will matter. And things like English sparkling wine is going to be, I think, incredibly powerful and valuable in creating an awareness of what we do in, in the industry here. But there's some very exciting trends coming on. We've talked about South Africa. I think that California as a fine wine producer is going to get stronger and stronger. Um, and we're seeing people spreading their wings beyond the obvious. Yeah, I agree. Well, lucky you for having a daughter that follows through. My son, I asked him over Christmas if he thought he would ever want to go into the wine trade, and he said, I think what you do is cool, Dad, but only if everything else goes wrong. right on that uh, brutal truth I think uh, we should probably wrap up but um, thank you Dan for um, for hosting us um, in this very beautiful room and for showing us two delicious wines and um, we look forward to uh, touching base with you again at the end of the year and seeing what's happened Uh, well I I hope it goes as well as we hope it goes Uh, but thank you very much indeed for coming in (laughs) 
Fiona and Liam have this week been talking to Dan Jago at the offices of Berry Brothers and Rudd. Join them for the next episode of Batonage, where they will be talking not about wine, but about gin, with broadcaster and telegraph wine columnist Susie Atkins. 